I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs— but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. So today, my guest is somebody who's really famous. Um, her name's Chelsea Handler, and she's got her own podcast, Dear Chelsea, and had me on a little while ago, and very graciously accepted an invitation to join me on Psychoactive. So, so Chelsea, thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thank you, Ethan. No problem. My pleasure. You know, I am pretty removed from, like, what's going on in pop culture in all sorts of ways. So I'll tell you the truth, and also for our listeners, that when, you know, our folks arranged for me to be on your podcast, I, I heard your name, but I didn't really have a clear idea of who you were. And so I did a little research so I knew why I was being on your podcast. But I have to say, it, you know, doing this deep dive and preparing for this thing, 
you're fucking amazing. I mean, you know, I'm looking at you. You're a world famous comedian. This is for the audience of my audience who doesn't know who you are. She is a actress. She is uh, a podcast host. She is a talk show host. In fact, I think she was only the second woman ever after Joan Rivers to have her own late night talk show. She's been doing documentaries on increasingly serious subjects while still interweaving all sorts of humor in it. She's a political activist. She's a social justice activist. She's currently at the end of 2022 on tour uh, with a comedy show called Vaccinated and Horny. So, I mean, Chelsea, I don't know how you do it all, um, but you're amazing. Oh, well, thank you. What a nice introduction. I love it. So I take it that your success is all about your drug use. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Yes. One leads very nicely into the other. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I I mean I have a very uh storied history with uh my affinity for drugs and the legalization of all sorts of things and uh yes, I like to share that on TV and off. No, I mean I guess part of your whole shtick, right, is that you're very out there about almost everything, right? And one of the things I saw was that one of the things that first got you into comedy was when after you first got arrested with a DUI Something like that? Uh, Yes. I was uh, arrested when I was 21 years old for a DUI, and I had been using my sister, my older sister's fake ID. So when I got pulled over for my DUI, I gave them my sister's ID because my practice had been to use her ID for anything involving alcohol. And so that got me into double trouble because of that, because I got a DUI and I was impersonating somebody else. And my sister was a Mormon at the time, and she was very, very much against drinking and me using her ID for such activities. So all in all, I got in a lot of trouble and I had to go to this DUI class for about eight weeks where you meet every Wednesday night and the guy running the class basically explains to you how to get out of your next DUI. So I'm not really sure why why this is a thing. But anyway, in that time, I had to make a speech and get up and kind of tell my story. And it was my first experience publicly speaking. And I was terrified. And uh, I kind of waited and waited and avoided being chosen and sat in the back of the class every night until the very last class where I was called to get up and tell my story. And in telling that story, It was pretty ridiculous. I mean, I called the cop racist. We were both white. I spent 72 hours in Sybil Brand College, which for a Jewish girl from an upper middle class neighborhood in New Jersey is a hot mess nightmare. But because of that class, everyone, I told my story and everyone was loving it and laughing and I could not get off stage. I just thought this was the best feeling in the world. And when I did get off, everyone's like, oh, you have to become a stand up comedian. And I had never thought about that before because I just it just seemed like something that I don't know. I just had never considered it. It seemed scary. And um, yeah, that's how I decided to become a stand up comedian. So thankfully, that was my first and last DUI. I learned my lesson the first time, so I didn't have to learn it a second time. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it kind of led to my career in stand up. So the irony is all over the place. So doing drugs growing up, I mean, did you start when you were like 12 or 13 or, or what was your no, drug no, experience no. growing up? No, no, no. I was very anti-drugs. I was very mm-hmm. against them until I tried them. And then I was like, oh, I like this. But I didn't really start doing drugs until I was like 18, 19 years old. And then it was booze or, I mean, acid or what? Yeah, lots of, uh, lots of LSD. We go to the limelight in New York City. We take a lot of LSD, mushrooms, you know, like psychedelics mostly. And mm-hmm. yeah, some alcohol, but not really alcohol as much until later 
once I was, you know, in my 20s and moved to Los Angeles. I moved to Los Angeles when I was 19. But in high school, it was much more about mushrooms and LSD. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, was any of this particularly memorable or was it just kind of doing it for yucks at the time? You know, we, I wasn't using it as a, a therapy and it wasn't yeah. therapeutic. I mean, it was probably therapeutic unbeknownst to me, but it was more of a party. You know, it was more to laugh and to dance and to just kind of be free. And like, you know, it was a great it was a great feeling. I connected with the feeling right away. I don't think I, I've ever had a negative experience. I know some people have, but with psilocybin or LSD, it was always the same kind of vibe, you know, very, I felt very in control. I didn't feel out of control, but I felt great. I love to laugh, you know, on mushrooms make you laugh and LSD can do the same thing. Sometimes it kind of hits mm -hmm. you differently, but it just gave me a sense of, um, uninhibitedness that I hadn't felt without it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I read that you were the youngest of six growing up, but I wonder growing up, I mean, were you getting high with your siblings as well? Or was this all the stuff you did separate from that? Uh, no, I wasn't getting high with them. I definitely started taking mushrooms with my brothers around 19 or 20 because I'm the one who had them. So, you mm -hmm. know, then I was able to share with them and they didn't really have a choice in the matter. So, yeah, I took mushrooms with my brothers uh, on several occasions and, you know, smoked pot with them. But uh, not until I was about 19. Uh-huh. And I take it with your parents, zero drug use together? No, my parents weren't. Yeah, they didn't do drugs. But my dad and my mom really didn't have any judgment on that. They just thought, you know, that's part of being a kid. My brothers and sisters who were older than me grew up in the 70s. So I was born in 75. So my parents were kind of used to like, you know, drug exploration. They didn't have a big problem with that. Even though, I mean, I realize you went to a synagogue, you were bat mitzvahs, your dad Jewish, but your mom like was Mormon? Yeah, she came over from Germany. So there's a big Mormon contingency over in Germany, or there was. And after the war, she came over. I mean, she was about six or seven when World War II ended. And her father was served in the German military. So he had been taken as a POW uh, in the first year of the war to Iowa. Mm -hmm. And so he was in Iowa for many years. And then the war ended and he returned. And then uh, they lived in Germany for about 10 more years. And then my mom came over to visit New Jersey when she was about 19 years old, met my father and went back home to Germany to tell them she was moving to America. And then shortly after my mom and dad got married, they got pregnant or probably before they got married, quite frankly. And then mm -hmm. my grandparents came over. So my grandparents and my mother were all Mormon and they came over and my dad was like, listen, I'm going to raise my family Jewish. So you have to get on board with that. There's not going to be any Mormonism in this family. And my mom said, sure, no problem. And so I thought my mom was Jewish until I was nine years old because she was at temple with us every weekend. And she would, you know, she knew all the Hebrew prayers and we celebrated all the uh, Jewish holidays. Um, yeah. And I didn't find out she wasn't Jewish until my uh, brother died when I was nine. And we found out she couldn't be buried in the same cemetery as my brother because she wasn't Jewish and she would have to convert to Judaism. So this was a conversation I overheard in my kitchen with Rabbi Kasdan, the aforementioned Rabbi Kasdan, mm -hmm. who bought mitzvah, your ex-wife and myself. And he was talking to my father saying we would have to convert Rita to Judaism. And I remember going, what do you mean convert? I thought mom <laughs> was Jewish. 
And my dad's like, no, mom's Mormon. And I was like, what's Mormon? And my dad's like, don't worry about it right now. And um, then I read the Book of Mormon about a year later. And, you know, I just threw it at my mother. I go, you can't be serious with this nonsense. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So your grandfather served in the German army in World War II. Uh huh. Yeah. And they sent him to the Russian front because he was one of those soldiers, like many German men, who wanted no part of it, but they didn't, you know, your family was at risk. So you had to serve in some way. But when they tested you to get in the army, you know, he just, he was a very physically strong guy. He kind of just didn't demonstrate any of that so that he would be, you know, uh, relegated to some kind of desk job or something. But they ended up sending him to the Russian front. And uh, that's where he was taken as a POW. Uh, interesting origins here. And, you know, in fact, we did an episode not long ago about Hitler, the Third Reich and drugs and what a pivotal role drugs played, like in the Blitzkrieg, am- amphetamine, not weed or anything like that, you know, mm. when the Germans invaded so quickly through Belgium and France. But, you know, going back to your mom being a Mormon, I mean, the Mormons are so like, you know, not just no weed or alcohol, it's not even any coffee or anything like that. Yet your mom was still kind of open minded about that stuff, huh? My mom, I think, was tired, mostly. I mean, she had had six children. I was the youngest, and I was a hel- like a hellion. Like, I came on the scene and was, uh, you know, just challenging them at every turn. I was, you know, but three years old, telling my parents what I thought of them, asking them if I had a dowry, what the game plan was for savings. I just constantly was challenging them. And being the youngest, that's typically what happens. You know, you absorb your older siblings, sensibilities and you pick up on everything and you're listening to everything. So you grow up very quickly. And um, I've had a strong personality my whole life. So my mom wasn't going to challenge me on any of that stuff. She only returned to Mormonism after my brother died. Uh, Mm -hmm. He had a terrible accident and he was the oldest. And then she became religious again, as one does. She kind of returned to her Mormonism to find solace there within the grieving process, I think. And she remained Mormon throughout the rest of her life. But yeah, she wasn't sanctimonious or, you know, trying to instill her beliefs in me. She just was doing her thing and wanted Mm -hmm. to be left alone doing that. And I remember also that she struggled with breast cancer for a long time. Was there any thought of her using uh, medical marijuana to deal with nausea from chemotherapy and all that sort of thing? No, that was pretty much before that was, you know, thought to be acceptable, really. You know, Mm -hmm. that never even came up. So it was a long time ago, but I guess... Yeah, it feels like it was before the advent of people understanding that, you know, marijuana comes from that ground (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that it's from Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. You know, just to shift away from the drug thing for a second, um, you know, I was wondering about this. I mean, you just talked about, you know, you're Jewish growing up and such. And I think about, you know, the the, so many of the famous comedians, both male and female, but with the female comedians, you think about Joan Rivers, you know, Goldie Hawn or Sarah Silverman, who I guess comes up just a little before you or Amy Schumer more recently. I mean, when you think about it, do you how do you think you're growing up? Jewish and this, I mean, does it shape comedy? Is there a reason why there seems to be a disproportionate number of Jews doing comedy in America? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. You have a sharper sense of humor by being, you know, persecuted. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. have that feeling, whether that happened to our generation, per se, where we grew up or not. I mean, I think that's intergenerational. You know, you always feel like as a Jew, until you come to Hollywood, that you're in the minority. Even though I grew up in a very Italian Jewish neighborhood in Livingston, mm-hmm. like it was very, there was lots of Jewish people, but it's just a very kind of 
I don't know, there's something very self-deprecating about being Jewish because there's humility in it. Hmm. And, um, you know, before we get into cannabis, because I can just, I mean, you're all over the place in the media. You're on more popular programs and news programs talking about how wonderful marijuana is, almost I can think of. But before we go there, you know, it seems like alcohol was pretty much the dominant drug in your life throughout your 20s. And that, on the one hand, it seemed like it almost became a problem, but never really. And maybe it was great and you stand by it, but there was... So, I mean, just talk about your relationship with booze, especially in your younger years and how that evolved. Well, like, I was a very much a party girl and I talked about it and made a living talking about it. Like, you know, I, I was rewarded for talking about it. My first book uh, was called My Horizontal Life, a Collection of One Night Stands. And, you know, people were like, oh, my God, I can't believe you got away with writing a book about that. I'm like, why? What's the problem? You know, I got a TV show where I talked about alcohol and drug use openly and I think for a while I was probably overusing alcohol because of what happened with my brother, the trauma of, you know, my brother dying at that young age and never really having the tools to access or articulate that pain, you know, and uh, react to it. My parents didn't have the wherewithal to get us into therapy and to get us into, you know, trauma grief. And, and I think that turns into, well, I don't think I know from going to therapy as an adult that that kind of delayed grief you know, you use drugs or you use alcohol to, you know, cover up your pain. And you don't think that there's a problem. You just think you're a fun person. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that's in my 20s and the abuse of alcohol, probably to certain degrees. It never was a problem where I had to like, you know, go to rehab or anything. I was always able to cut it out if I had needed to or tone it down when I needed to. But mm -hmm. I have to say, no one really ever even asked me to tone it down because, I was doing well in all facets of my life if that are measurable, you know? It's mm -hmm. kind of an inside job for you to take a look at why you want to drink so much or why you lean on alcohol in the way you do. So nobody ever brought it to my attention. It was definitely part of my persona, and it still is. I still drink. Obviously, I don't drink like I did in my 20s because now I understand, you know, the ill effects of drinking and the deleterious impact it has on you. And you know, how to use it more responsibly. Plus, I'm 47 years old. It doesn't feel good to drink like that. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't have a desire like that anymore. Mm -hmm. But I can still tie one on, Ethan. Let's uh -huh. not get it twisted. Uh-huh. No, I saw someplace you said, Josie, you said, if I was an alcoholic, I'd be a functional alcoholic. I mean, I guess you would never have to describe yourself as an alcoholic, even if you were drinking too much at times, because you could always stop when you wanted to. And you would just clear out and clean out and all that. And it never really cost you professionally. It's not as if you're out there doing sets and you realize that you were screwing up or forgetting lines or this sort of stuff or being off. Although you also talked about sometimes not, you know, the next morning, not remembering the last set you did. Yeah. Well, yes, that definitely did happen. And so there were instances. It just wasn't a common, it wasn't a recurring theme. Like it didn't happen over and over again. It mm -hmm. happened a couple of times and, you know, they very much kind of woke me up and said, okay, this is, you're going a little too far here. Now mm -hmm. you have to get yourself under control. So mm -hmm. I've always had a very like, um, decent, you know, sense of self-awareness with regard to my drinking and how it's affecting my career. And if it was, so yeah, it never got to a place where, where that, you know, where anybody had to sit me down and say, okay, you know, let's get a grip here. And did you have a favorite? I mean, I, I think your second book was called Are You There, Vodka? It's me, Chelsea. I mean, was vodka your favorite booze or were you like anything? You know, it could be wine, beer, it could be no, hard liquor, no. cocktails. I, ba I basically just only drink vodka. Uh-huh. Straight? Like, 
Uh, no, I put a little soda water in it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But so you're not like strong... into martinis with a no. vermouth or that kind of thing. No, no. I like vodka and soda. That's pretty much... And that's more... I mean, the genesis of that is more for dietary and, you know, vanity than anything else. It was like the one drink you could drink without bloating or putting on weight. You know, vodka was supposed to be the cleanest alcohol. Now they say tequila is, but I'm still devoutly... Uh, a vodka drinker. A vodka drinker. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And would you ever drink on stage when you're performing? Or was that part oh, of your yes. act? Oh, yes. All the time. Of course. Yeah. That's part of it. Yeah. That's and, part and would of you the be getting lore. inebriated while you're on stage? Uh, I have been. I have been on stage where I didn't remember. Absolutely. I, I used to go on tour. I remember my last stand-up tour. I had would be doing two shows at arenas back to back at the same night. And the second show I would barely remember. And I was exhausted. I had been doing like eight years of my television show or seven years. Mm -hmm. I had four books come out back to back to back. So that's a book tour, which is a stand-up tour. And I had just worked myself into the ground and it became my coping mechanism, which is one of the reasons I stopped doing my show and I stopped doing stand-up. I had just had had it. I was exhausted and I was, you know, using alcohol to like get me through the next show to give me energy. And so, yeah, that was a big turning point. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. 
Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. For our audience, you know, a few years ago, Chelsea did a series of four documentaries on Netflix, like on Chelsea Does the Internet, Silicon Valley, mar- one on marriage, one on racism, and one on drugs. And you spent about a quarter of the episode talking to people who had been in rehab, being addicted. Um, I mean, you know, it felt like, I mean, part of the other parts of it, of course, were about, you know, we'll get into your ayahuasca trip and other types of elements of drug use and getting high marijuana, much more celebratory. And so when you were doing that part of it, the rehab thing, I mean, obviously you're trying to show the spectrum of people's relationship with drugs. But when you see people struggle that way, do you just feel like there, but for the grace of God, though, I or that you just simply can't relate? Or, I mean, you know, what did you think about those elements of it? I just remember someone saying to me at a very early age or overhearing a conversation saying, I don't ever want to have to give up alcohol, so I'm never going to abuse it. And that just stayed with me. So I, I, I could relate to these people, but I thought, oh, like I, I never let it get me. You know, I never felt that I had let it get me. I'm sure other people would disagree, by the way. I'm sure other people would be like, oh my God, she's a lush or she was a lush or whatever. But that's not really, that doesn't matter to me. It's what I, mm-hmm. you know, it's how I experienced it. And whenever I felt like it had gotten out of control or it could get out of control, I reined it in because I didn't ever want to have to give something up completely. I didn't ever want to have to go to rehab, you know, mm-hmm. or do something like that. And yeah, and I don't think I have that addictive personality. I just, I like to have fun, but I don't have that addiction gene. Luckily, mm-hmm. because neither of my parents had it either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm sort of the same way. I mean, I've been, I think, you know, I basically enjoyed the vast majority of drugs. And most, almost every drug has been a kind of net benefit in my life. And anytime it seems like if I get high three, four days in a row, I just only want to get high the next, you know, next while. I just want to kind of clear out. It's always been the same way with alcohol. But you threw another drug in the mix back then, which I've never really played around with that much, which is Ambien, the sleeping pills. What was that about? Oh, yeah. We were demonstrating what happens to people when they're on Ambien and uh, what happens when you drink on Ambien because Ambien is, can be such a dangerous sleeping pay- pill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did that. We showed, you know, how how people act when they have one Ambien, when they mix it with alcohol, when they have two Ambien. Uh, we were just kind of going through what drugs we could legally do on television, and that fell under that category. Right. No, I'm not. And I think it was an interesting point because one of the things that people, I think, you know, 
don't or do realize is that when you're combining alcohol with a sleeping pill like Ambien, I think on the TV show you did a 10 milligrams Ambien and a couple of cocktails as well, or when you're combining it with alcohol and opioids, that basically if you combine it in quote unquote the right amounts, there's a modest amounts, it can actually be a great high, but that if you sort of do too much of it, it can actually stop your breathing. So it's got a it's got a high danger risk level, but you can understand why people do it because it feels good. But what about in your own life? I thought there was a point where you were sort of do, getting into the sleeping pill at night thing and all this and beginning to wonder if that would be a problem. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've probably been through that experience with almost every drug. Like I, I've always experimented. Yeah, there was a period of time where I used Ambien. I, I don't know, maybe a year or something where I experimented with Ambien. There was a year when I experimented with Xanax. Sometimes I take Xanax, you know, today, like to go to sleep. If I'm traveling and back and forth, I just came home from Mallorca for a month. So yeah, I use Xanax to get me back on track. But uh, again, it's about using these things judiciously and not becoming, you know, reliant on them. That's where cannabis comes in in such a helpful way because cannabis is a great alternative to almost any you know, drug that you're going to get from a pharmaceutical company. You know, it can relax you. It can help you sleep. It can help you focus if you're taking the right strain. There are so many benefits to it. So yeah, I mean, that's why I'm such an advocate for cannabis use because I mean, what the pharmaceutical companies have done to this country, you know, you, we can't be trusting them and, and, and having a reliance on any of these substances is terrifying for a lot of people. And, you know, when you get your genealogy tested, they do tell you whether you have that addiction gene. They do when you do 23andMe, they can tell yeah. you that. And, and if you do have it, I mean, you look at people with the opioid crisis, people who've done, who did, you know, oxycodone or not oxycodone. What, what's the drug? The one? Yeah, the oxycodone is the generic name. Oxycontin was oh, the brand name. Right. Yeah. I mean, people would take three of those and be addicted. And there were other people who did it for three weeks and weren't addicted. So mm-hmm. it's it's also a measure of what, you know, your constitution is made up of. That's a huge factor that nobody had been factoring in for years before we had this genetic testing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. But by the way, just to finish off the other drugs before cannabis, you never really got into the opioids, it sounds like. Not clear if you ever got much into stimulants, you know, the amphetamine or stuff like that, or into tobacco. I mean, basically, is that basically right, that those three drug categories you generally avoided or just dabbled I smoked, in? I smoked a little bit of cigarettes. I smoked a little bit uh, for a few years, and then I got hypnotized. I gave that up. Uh, stimulants, amphetamines. No, I mean, I've definitely done cocaine, uh, no heroin or anything like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've tried pretty much everything that's out there, probably minus heroin or crack or, you know, crystal meth. I have never done those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or Ibogaine, I would bet. I don't know what that is. What's Ibogaine? Oh, oh well, I, I don't know if I tell you whether you got something to look forward to. But I, Ibogaine is uh, one of the few psychedelic uh, things that comes from a, a plant, actually a root in Africa in Gabon called Iboga. And it's the one that people use. Nobody does it for fun or for yucks. Um, some people do it for greater spiritual insight, but it's more commonly associated with people who have a very serious addiction. 
to opioids or alcohol or other things, using it to um, basically clear their system of that. And there's, you know, a beginnings amount of research on it. It may turn out to be one of the most amazing of all the psychedelics in terms of really oh. being helpful to people. But it's a long, long, it's, it's longer than LSD. It's intense. You know, I mean, when you talked about doing ayahuasca and, you know, wariness about, you know, the diarrhea and the nausea and throwing up, I mean, Ibogaine for many people has the same thing, if not even, you know, more challenging. But, you know, Chelsea, I guess so when you had me on your podcast, right, you interviewed me for the first half hour, and then you and I took questions from your audience, you know, about drugs, and they were looking for drug use. And neither of us are doctors, but we both have a lot of experience and knowledge. And I was very impressed at the way you're handling a lot of those questions. And, and at one point, I saw yourself, not when we were talking, but someplace else, describe yourself as a pharmacological intuit. There's with somebody <laughs> with natural intuition when it comes to drug use. Um, is that just based on experience or you find that, you know, people are valuing your advice in terms of what you're telling them about this? I mean, I just have a pretty good read on people. I can meet somebody and I understand if they're a person that can handle cannabis, that can handle alcohol, that can handle, you know, mushrooms. Like people come to me all the time, my friends and relatives, and they're always like, what do I take for this? What do I take for that? I just have a vast experience and interest. You know, I think when you're interested in something and the same with pharmaceuticals, I'm very interested in pharmaceuticals. I'm very interested in anti-aging stuff. I'm very interested in peptides. Like when you have a natural curiosity about something, you know, you absorb a lot of the information around it. So I'm an open book and a like, you know, a reliable source when, when it's something I've had experience with or I've seen other people have, you know, positive outcomes with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So on the psychedelic stuff, I mean, you did a lot of acid back then. Uh, are you still doing acid? No, I haven't done LSD in a really long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't mind doing some, actually. Yeah, it's funny. I, I have this lesson. I like microdose it, but uh, it's never been my thing. I think for both you and me, mushrooms, it, you know, plays big time. And I've, I've I've read about you doing, you know, mushrooms with your staff, I think, mushrooms, this and that. So t tell us, say something more about you and mushrooms. Oh, well, I love mushrooms. I like microdosing mushrooms. I have uh, something called Fun Dip. My friend grows her own mushrooms and she just grounds them up and then it gives them to me. And you just like put your finger in, take a little, you know, put it in your tongue and it's just like a little pick me up. And, you know, you're talking about, 10 milligrams or so at, at most. So you're not dosing yourself. Like, you know, it would take five grams to have an actual mushroom sit, which some of my friends in Whistler, Canada are doing this winter, which I said I would join them in, which is one of those guided kind of, you know, mm -hmm. journeys that you take with somebody there journaling with you and, you know, where you put eye shades on and you put your headphones on and you actually have a sit. So that would be like five grams where you, they say you get rid of your ego you know, I was like, well, what about two and a half grams? She's like, you'll still have your ego. It'll still be, you'll be laughing. Like you want to get past the ego part. And I was like, okay, I'm interested in that because you can get rid of, you know, really old patterns of behavior and you can actually see yourself outside of yourself, which is much like my experience doing ayahuasca when I went to Peru. And one of the episodes of Chelsea Does on Netflix, uh, we did ayahuasca in Peru. And um, that was a, an experience where I understood what it felt like to be outside of yourself and looking at your life. And it, it was like watching a phantasmagoria of my own experiences, it, like, as an, like playing like an iPod shuffle, just all my childhood memories with my sister and me, just playing like back and forth like dogs that we had that I had forgotten about, repressed or suppressed memories that just came alive. You know, it opens up those neural pathways where you can remember these things 
And it was a really powerful experience, which is what would draw me to do that with either, I mean, they, the options have recently been ketamine or psilocybin. And I feel like ketamine sounds a little bit more disassociative and that's not my preference. So mm-hmm. I think I might do that mushroom sit when I get up to Whistler this winter for skiing season. Well, I mean, I- I'll tell you something, Chelsea. You know, so watching the episode, right? The Chelsea does the ayahuasca, and I say, so you know, you go down to Peru, right? You got this shaman there. You're with two friends, a guy and a and, and a younger woman, and and the first night you all drink, and the guy's having a terrible experience. At least that's the way he describes it, you know, on camera. And and the younger woman, she has a powerful one about childhood stuff. And you're just sitting there like, I'm not feeling anything. And like, I could almost like empathize with you as like a holy shit. I mean, first of all, here's my two friends. They're both having big experiences. One bad, one good. You know, Netflix just paid for the whole camera crew to come down here. I'm down here and I took the same dose as them and I'm not feeling anything. And it sounds like the next day you said to the shaman, lay it on me and give me, you know, the dose. I want to make sure I have an experience. And then, you know, so I, (laughs) is that more or less what was happening that first night when you didn't feel anything? Or barely. Yeah, well, I think my both of my friends that I had dragged down to Peru to do ayahuasca with me were having such kind of histrionic reactions to the drug. I mean, Mm -hmm. which is par for the course. So I guess I shouldn't use that word uh, because that lends itself to think that they couldn't handle it. I mean, a lot of people have those kinds of reactions and they were very emotional and they were very sick. And it just kind of took me out of mine because, you know, I was responsible for them. So I mean, I, I just couldn't relax and let the drug take a hold of me. I felt it coming on. And then when I saw my friends and heard my friends bawling and crying, I was like, oh, I have to be there for them. So mm-hmm. the next day that they were like, OK, no friends. And, you know, let's cut the cameras in half. Instead of having four cameras, we had one. And I went into a room alone with the shaman and he gave me a double dose of what I had tried the night before. And then I was able to really focus on my own experience. Mm-hmm. Have you done it since? No, I haven't. I, I don't really have a desire to do that drug again. I would. I mean, a lot of my friends are always asking me to do it with them because there's people that do it here in Topanga Canyon and, you know, all over the country. People are doing ayahuasca now. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a strong urge to do that again. Mm hmm. You mentioned Topanga on one of your shows. I saw you talking about doing uh, the toad medicine, 5-MeO-DMT. That didn't oh, yeah. sound so pleasant. Well, yeah, say, no. talk about that one. That was not pleasant. That is called an ego killer, but it was, it's like an eight and 10 minute experience. And uh, I was just, it was, it was awful. I was immediately had to, I was recovered in my own sweat within 30 seconds, had to lie back. It was dark, dark, ominous. All I remember are black clouds and black clouds. And I, I, I had never felt that on drugs before. I'd always felt hopefulness and enlightenment, you know, and positivity and twinkling and things looking like, you know, more beautiful than they would look in my natural state. But I had never experienced that reaction where everything just felt odious and, and calamitous. And so uh, I just was telling her, I'm like, please make this stop, make this stop, make this stop. And she was just kind of rubbing my arm and holding my hand. And it was over quickly, thankfully. But I was not, yeah, that was not a pleasant experience. So you're not going to do that one again? No, I'm not. 
Because, I mean, so many just people describe smoking this stuff and having these 15 minutes of wondrous, universal, you know, some feeling like it's lasting a lifetime in a positive sense of the term and, you know, then coming back and, you know, life transformative trips. I mean, in my case, I was intrigued by it. and I was kind of scared of it. And I finally got up the guts to tell a friend of mine who's led a lot of people on their first five, you know, five MEO, DMT, toad medicine things. OK, I'm ready to do it. And he says, actually, Ethan, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't actually have the smokable version. I only have the snortable version. And I said, well, okay, how will it be different? He goes, you know, I'm not exactly sure as how long it'll last. He goes, maybe twice as long, maybe 30 minutes. So he lays out two long lines, and I snort these two lines of the stuff, and it burned like hell going down, finally settled oh. down. And I got to tell you, five hours later, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, it was kind of like a mushroomy sort of thing. But I mean, at one point, I had energy shooting out my legs. I'm lying on my back with their dog licking my face while I'm doing this thing. And I'm like, and afterwards, they said to me, Ethan, were you doing Kundalini exercise? I said, what's Kundalini? Because my legs were like zapping outward and all this sort of stuff. And even when I finished, I was, you know, trying to talk and I was like, talking like this. I do, you know, I mean, I literally couldn't get words out of my mouth coherently until the next morning. So that is definitely a very, very powerful thing, which I think so I did will. You, yeah. You will do again? I think I want to try the smokable version and, and see what that's like, because it wasn't apart from how much it burned going down. It was not an unpleasant experience. You know, I mean, it's, you know, when I think when I was a guest on your show, we talked to some people calling in and I said, you know, some people say there's no, no such thing as a bad trip. Other people have horrifying experiences, whether it's on mushrooms or peyote, mescaline, ayahuasca. Part of it's how you interpret it. I know people who felt like they went through hell and they come out of it and saying it was the best thing that ever happened to them. Um, so, you know, it, a lot of it's in the definition. And I'll also tell you, in terms of doing that megadose, like you're thinking of doing with your friends on mushrooms, I've done it at like that five, six milligram level where, you know, you can't let me out in public because I look a bit psychotic. I don't get the ego dissolution. I stay pretty centered the whole time, but it's a very powerful, somewhat spiritual, moving experience very memorable. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely encourage you. I think, I think you'll really, uh, you know. Oh, so. oh, well, that's good to know. So, you know, we talked in your program about MDMA and, and I was a little surprised when you said that you've, you've never done it in a romantic situation, just you and your romantic partner, that you've done it with friends, you've done it partying. I wonder, since we've done that, have you had a chance to do it in a more intimate environment? I mean, no, I've done MDMA with a romantic partner, but not in a therapy setting, which is what we were talking about on I my see. podcast. Like I you see. were talking about couples having problems and doing MDMA mm -hmm. guided therapy, which I would have I would have loved to do with several partners. I didn't even know that was a thing. But yeah, of course, I've done it with romantic partners. It's fun to do with anybody. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So listen, so now to cannabis, I mean, you're out there all over the place. You had a funny story you were telling about getting your, uh, you know, your sister, who was a recovering Mormon, you described her. I mean, what, what, what was that like when she did it? Was her first cannabis experience when she did it? Or she'd done it when she was younger or what? Uh, no, no. My sister is very, uh, yeah, she's very inexperienced when it comes to drinking or drug use. So I just kind of got my whole family on board with edibles. We go to Whistler, Canada each year to ski, and they started baking us cannabis-infused cookies up there about 10 or 11 years ago. And we just started handing them out before we went to dinner, and um, it made our family vacations just that much more fun. We all just seemed to get along great, have great times. 
laugh our asses off. And then we just develop this great affinity for cannabis. So yeah, I serve it up every every Christmas now. I see. I see. Have you ever overdosed on an edible? I mean, like we all have those stories from college about having too much in a, you know, marijuana brownie or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I've had situations where I felt high for a couple of days, but again, I'm not one of those people who freaks out. Like I don't get like oh, paranoid. That that that's not my my bag. I've seen lots of my friends react in that way when you have a brownie or you know, I mean I had a cannabis infused dinner that we filmed for Netflix, a dinner party one night. Uh that was on my Netflix talk show and we, I was high for 3 days after that because they're just serving you one meal after another that's cannabis infused. So there is no way to recover from that. I mean, one of my eyes didn't open for like 24 hours. Uh, I was so high. So that was not a great feeling. But again, I don't have, you know, freak outs. Yeah. I got to say, the only time that ever happened to me, I was in college. I, I think I had smoked some very strong marijuana before I'd ever done edibles. And then sometimes we would do that and we'd go to the sauna. And we'd sit in the sauna and we'd play backgammon. And it would almost be like this contest, like, you know, how long can you stay in the sauna? How far can you get through the backgammon? And and I was so baked from the cannabis already. And being in the sauna just doubly baked it into my head. And I almost passed out, almost fell over, got home. And I'll say it took a good 36 hours to clear out. And never done that again. I mean, that was a highly unpleasant experience. So, oh, yeah, that sounds unpleasant. I don't like yeah. the idea of sauna and being high. Mm -hmm. I'm, I have an aversion to extreme heat. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you also, I, I see, let me see if I got this right. One other thing I heard you say that surprised me, it was cannabis. I thought you said that it's not something you particularly enjoy with sex. Is that right? Or did I hear you wrong? Uh, I mean, I just don't think of it as a sexual drug. I've definitely had sex on cannabis, but I don't think of it as an aphrodisiac. That's so interesting. Yeah, you know, it's, I know. I mean, because it's got such a reputation for that. You know, there, there's the, the Pulitzer Prize winning writer, Natalie Angier, writes for The New York Times. And she did this book uh, that won the Pulitzer. And she talked about how herself and, and everyone in her family had their first full-blown orgasm on the influence of marijuana. I mean, I've heard many of these things where for so many, both men and women, but especially women, it's the thing that just kind of settles all the chatter, helps them get more connected into it. But that's not really been your experience on this. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would say the opposite. And I think I find it tr ha harder to orgasm on cannabis has been my experience. Wow. Well, that's interesting. I wonder why that is. Not impossible, just yeah. more difficult. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I, yeah, I think it's just how your receptors ingest the drug. You know, some of us have like a certain reaction. Mm. And yeah, I think some people become calmer. Some people become less engaged. Some people become hyperactive, you know, it's like, what are your genes going to do with that information that the, and the drug being the information? Mm -hmm. So I think we all react differently to all sorts of things. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
kids. If you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on Story Button, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. You know, I'm thinking about two prior episodes I did on Psychoactive. One was about Jews and cannabis. It was based on an exhibit at the Center for Jewish History in New York, and I'm thinking you should have been one of the stars in this exhibit. Um, but the other one uh, that's uh, just gone up recently is about um, jazz and drugs, based on a book by a fellow named Martin Torgoff, Bop Apocalypse. And it gets all into the various dimensions. You know, the question about why so many of the famous jazz musicians used weed. There was a whole big phase of using heroin, you know, Charlie Parker and a lot of the other musicians. Alcohol is oftentimes being a destructive element. But in your case, when you think about the creative process and your writing, your material and such, what role do the various drugs play, if any, in all of that? I mean, I definitely use cannabis and mushrooms when I'm writing books. I've written six books. I'm working on my seventh right now, which were, have all been number one New York Times bestsellers, I should add, just because we're in the age where you have to kind of sing your own praises. So I'll do that. Um, and I definitely use that. Like I, When I write everything, I just kind of spit it all out or vomit it all out, I should say. I put everything down and then I have to go back and finesse it and 
and infuse it with humor and infuse it with all of the fun stuff. And I find that cannabis or mushrooms are a great aid in doing that. You know, if I, the mm -hmm. other night I was at my girlfriend's house and we smoked a joint, I came home and I wrote for an hour, you know, cause I was, I was like, Oh, okay, let me go through this chapter. So it helps. I don't think it, for me, it's not part of the initial process, but it's part of the process. And when you write for an hour under the influence, how does it look the next morning? Some of it's great and profound and some of it's garbage. Yeah. I sometimes find that when, I, when I'm getting high on, on weed, I'll have all these great ideas, but then the next morning they just seem like they're just blowing away in the wind. Whereas with mushrooms, there have been times on mushrooms where I find myself writing, you know, a, a very personal letter to a friend, a former lover, whatever it might be. And then the next day sitting down, it's still totally clear as a bell and I can write it out and send it to the person. And it's probably the best letters I've ever written in my life had been under the influence of mushrooms. But do you see something similar in the, in the difference between the two? Uh, I mean, have there ever been ones where you think like a real serious aha moment that's come um, with one drug or the other? Yeah, mushrooms, I think, is more that way because mushrooms are more realistic. It's just accentuating the beauty that lies there anyway. You see things in a more uh, kind of uh, magical way. You know, that's why they're called magic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. uh, pot can just make you think things are funny when they aren't. Or, you know, you have good ideas when you don't. Mushrooms are pretty, I think, they run parallel to your nature as is. It's just an augmentation of, of the beauty of things and, and the use of language. You know, you can write more elegantly when you're on mushrooms. You can think more elegantly and you perceive more elegantly. Mm-hmm. So now when you're out there, I mean, you're so frank in talking about so much. Um, and I'm curious, what has been the reaction like of Netflix, of HBO, or the theaters where you perform? And how has that evolved over time? I mean, do you have to sign agreements to say you won't say certain things? Were there ever constraints on what you could say? Did the lawyers I mean, get on your ass about stuff? Did uh? Yeah, they got on my ass, but I, you know, I, I've always argued and fought for being able to speak the truth of my experience. So, you know. I guess after a while of doing that, you know, people know, understand when they hire me what that comes with and what I'm going to say and that I'm not good with a lot of parameters about certainly about the truth and my own experiences, you know, um, language you can edit and, you know, use of bad language or language that's not welcome on, you know, network television. But uh, behaviors, I, I've never been able to pretend I'm anything other than what I am. So anytime I'm doing business with somebody, you know, they know what they're signing up for. Mm -hmm. I mean, I see people are always pressing you to apologize for something you said, and on rare occasions you have, but you've never had to do that around drugs, right? No, no. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing I admire about you is you're not just talking about your own drug use and giving pretty good advice to people about this, but you've also become increasingly political. I mean, part of your life is being being a social justice activist and political activist and on, on issues around gay rights and a lot of other progressive issues, but you've increasingly been stepping out about the drug war. And I think more recently, a few years ago, you did a documentary on white privilege. And there was a fascinating personal story where you go back and visit, you know, your boyfriend from when you were in high school and just share a bit of that story and some of the realization from that with the audience. Um, yeah, I, w I went and visited my high school boyfriend, whose name was Tyshawn. 
And I had dated him for two years and we got caught with marijuana two or three times. And each time we got caught, the police arrested him because he was black and I was white. And they told me just to go back to my neighborhood. Like I was let off immediately and he was, you know, sent to jail. And he was the captain of the football team. He was, I think, the captain of the basketball team, too. He had a big future ahead of him. And once you get into that system, it's very hard to get out. And he ended up spending, I think, 11 or 12 years in prison. Um, and while I was able to just go on my merry way, you know, I never thought twice about him after we broke up. You know, every once in a while it would come up. So I was able to visit him during this documentary just to demonstrate kind of my naivete and entitlement and, you know, being able to walk into a community like his and walk out when I was done with it versus him being targeted you know, and us being caught for the same, same act and one of us being punished and one of us being, you know, released. So it was pretty obvious back in the day, but I wasn't thinking on those terms, you know, when you're 16 years old, you're not thinking about that kind of racial inequity or discrimination. You know, it's not until you get older that you're able to reflect and have a more responsible recollection of things. And through that recollection and reflection, you know, I wanted to really examine it and examine all of the things that go with that. So listen, now I'm wondering, you know, I, I'm looking about what you're doing with your, you know, in your life now. And yes, you got another book coming out. You're on tour. Um, you've hosted a late night talk show before. You know, I see, you know, just recently uh, Trevor Noah saying he's leaving The Daily Show. And I'm thinking, wow, I mean, Chelsea would be amazing, you know, in that role to step into those shoes that he and John Stewart had. And I wonder, is that something you're like not either that specifically or generally interested in doing now? Do you think your openness about so much stuff, both drugs and other stuff, might still be a barrier? Would you be expected to pull your punches a bit on all that type of stuff? I mean, what does it look like from where you sit right now? I mean, we're we're definitely having conversations about me going back to TV and doing a late night show. Um, you know, Trevor Noah quitting is definitely a conversation my agents and I are having around it. You know, yes, I would be interested in pursuing conversations around that. I am definitely I hosted Jimmy Kimmel for a week a couple months ago, and I really just didn't realize how much I had missed it. I I loved commenting on everything that's going on politically and, you know, kind of culturally what's happening. And and I'm very good at it. You know, it's a skill set that I have. And I would love to go back to TV now. Now that I've had some time away from it, I can appreciate it a lot more. Uh, being in the thick of it and kind of working relentlessly for seven or eight years makes you kind of just want to bow out from all things. So now I'm in a different state of mind, for sure. Mm hmm. So last question, you know, I mean, you're obviously very much of a feminist. You're talking about some of the issues of sexism and like who gets to be big talk show hosts in the, you know, in the media world and such. But you also make some observations about men and women and drugs. Like at one point you notice that, for example, men are much less inhibited in lighting up and such. And I wonder if you've got other thoughts about differences between men and women when it comes to their cannabis or other drug use. Or is that about it? I mean, I, I just think that women, you know, like anything, it's a little bit more stigmatized when it comes to women. Men with all things have a, a greater sense of freedom and a greater sense of uh, liberation, whereas women, you know, you find us hiding in the corner. You know, there's a lot of shame attached to drug use and especially female cannabis use. It's just not the same as male cannabis use. So it's a big, you know, point of talking uh, or talking point for me with regard to because I, you know, 
I want women to be loud and proud. And men don't get this drug for themselves. Like, you know, it, it it's a lot like watching, you know, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard on trial. And you're sitting there, he's being lauded as being this cool guy who drinks, you know, a half carafe of Merlot in the mornings and is snorting lines of cocaine with Marilyn Manson. Like, and people love it. They're like, oh, she's a terrible woman. Look at him. He's so fun. Like, that would just never happen, you know, if that were a woman a female mm-hmm. who was snorting lines of cocaine. And I mean, it's so, you know, uh, hypocritical and there's such a double standard for women and, and drugs that, yeah, I like to, I like to talk about, you can, you can do drugs and have a hugely successful life. I'm here to prove that. Like you can be a functioning person and also have a good time on the side. That doesn't just get to happen for men. Yeah. But I think when it comes to prominent women, Oh, if I Google on, on your name and drugs and video and you pop up on every single major talk show talking about this, in addition to a host of other places. Um, so I really credit you. I mean, I think actually when, you know, in terms of, you know, my life's cause, which was ending marijuana prohibition and rolling back the broader war on drugs, I think the role that you've been playing and also by getting out there, you know, not just two years ago, but six, seven, eight years ago, more years ago about that, I really think you've you've made a positive contribution to shifting the culture and also to helping move along political sentiment in this way. So for that, I want to thank you. Oh, my God. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I also want to thank you, Chelsea, for joining me and my listeners on Psychoactive for this most enjoyable conversation. Absolutely. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. Okay. Well, take care. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Martin Lee all about CBD. He's the founder and head of ProjectCBD.org. We're at this precipice. There's over 900 clinical trials now in effect with CBD. There's a massive amount of preclinical data that suggests that CBD shows utility and effectiveness and and significant benefits in a number of areas for neurological diseases, for certain mood disorders like anxiety I mentioned, also depression, uh, for pain also. It's, It's clear that those are the big three, pain, anxiety, and depression. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.